We are in Song of Solomon, chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 9 through 16. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? My beloved is radiant and ready, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Uh, we're going to dive in. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. If, you're, if you haven't been here, we're, we're in the Song of Solomon, middle of your Bible, kind of the wisdom section near the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Psalms. Um, kind of coming down the home stretch here, so a little over halfway through. And as we dive into that word, I'll take a moment to pray, and, I, and as I pray, I'll um, like to just remember kind of the city of London as they're dealing with another terror attack on their city and uh, affecting lives. And so I know that affects some of us in, in profound ways and uh, obviously affects our world as we just kind of think through what's happening. And um, so we'll pause just kind of remember that event and those people. Let's take a moment to pray. God, it is with, with heavy hearts this morning that we, we seek you uh, with a sense of um, bewilderment just a week after uh, a, a previous attack that uh, was just shocking and horrifying. Um, Anger, perhaps, in some of us. Um, we might be even asking, God, where are you? What are you doing? And so, God, it's in that um, space that we, we do ask you uh, to give us eyes to see you, um, hearts that want to know you, and uh, a confidence to seek your will. We pray the prayer that you taught us to pray, Jesus, your will on earth as in heaven. We know it's not your will that people should die or be torn apart um, by terror attacks like this. And so we ask for your will to be done. Uh, we ask for you to put people in places of leadership that can bring your will to bear. Uh, we ask for people with wisdom as well as uh, hearts that desire peace in London, but all over the world. Um, so we ask you on this day of Pentecost, Spirit, to... to Pour yourself out onto our broken world again. Uh, refresh us, renew us, revive us, restore us. And God, we thank you that we have the freedom and the, um, yeah, the space in which to gather here this morning. Thank you for your word. Uh, and so as we open it, God, um, we pray that you'd equip us to be people of hope, even in our city, where at times it can feel like we're good, 
but we know there is also darkness here. And that you, you want to do work in and through us to, uh, to be light and to overcome that darkness. So equip us to that end, Jesus. We thank you that you have given us your word to not just study, but to be in relationship with through you. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, they say, uh, so Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, chapter 5, they say you have not one, but four selves. Learned this in psychology in college. Uh, And maybe you've heard this before. It's called the Johari Window. Have anybody heard of the Johari Window? It's named after two psychologists. Yeah, some of you are psychology majors or you took a psych class in college. It comes from two psychologists who developed this tool. It's a diagnostic tool for understanding relationships and ourselves. Developed back in 1955. And it's kind of broadly speaking, um, if you can imagine a window with four panes, uh, it's a way to imagine yourself in relationship to another person or other people or just yourself and your personality, kind of like, you know, personality test of sorts, but not quite that. So imagine a four-pane window, and in one pane, there's this pane called the known self, okay? So this is things we know about ourselves and that other people know about us as well. So these are kind of your habits, your skills, your hobbies, some of your, your attitudes, you, you express those to people, that's your known self, okay? We all have a known self. The, the second pain over here, you could say, is the hidden self. And this is the, the self that um, things we know about ourselves but others don't know yet, okay? So it could be things like those in pain one, things we've, we haven't revealed yet because, you know, we don't know, I don't know you well enough, or things we were, maybe we're not willing to share, family history, uh, failures, shame, secret sins. You know, there's all kinds of stuff in that hidden self. Pain one, pain two. And the third pain is the blind self. And this is where we get the term blind spots from, you know. It's the pain that basically we, things that we don't know about ourselves but others know. So you have an anger problem. And you don't know it. But your carpool buddies do, you know. Or you, when you're in conflict situations, you either get really defensive or you, you totally go inward. And you don't know that, but other people can see that. Like it's just written plain, right, in your facial expressions. That's called the, the um, what is it again? The blind self. Okay, the last self, this fourth pain, is the unknown self. And this is things that neither we nor other people know about us. It's things in the future, things that haven't happened yet, or also things that are deeply embedded in our memories, subconscious, things that we just, that are, are gone, repressed, or things that are just in our hearts that we just desires that we haven't fully realized yet. So there's four selves. And psychologists will tell you that the sweet spot here, the goal here with this diagnostic tool, the Johari window, is to enlarge the pain of the known self and to shrink these other three pains of the unknown, the, the hidden, and the, the blind self. Um, or of the, the, the unknown, the blind, and the hidden, uh, whatever. You get my point. <laughs> I paid a lot of attention in psych. So to decrease these other three pains, kind of become a one-pane window. To, it's another way of just saying sort of becoming transparent. You know, like if you look at a window with just one pane of glass, you can see clearly right through it if it's clean, uh, to become authentic. And that's good for us, right? We talk about this at Bethany a lot. It's one of our values, to be authentic and transparent in relationships. <laughs> Though not all agree with that. Certainly not people in our, in our society, widely, don't agree that it's good to be transparent. I'll give you an example. About a decade ago, the author A.J. Jacobs, uh, he's a humorist, a guy, a columnist I love to read, he spent a few weeks trying to be totally authentic. He wrote this article in the, 
Atlantic Monthly, kind of going from a, tried to go from a four-paned window to a one-paned window in just a matter of a, a few weeks. Confessing in this article that, that he had a lying problem, here's what he says. Mine aren't big lies, like I can't recall that crucial meeting from two months ago, Senator. Mine are little lies, white lies, half-truths, the kind we all tell, but I tell dozens of them a day. Here he is again. Yeah, let's get together soon. I love to, but I have, oh, stomach flu. Or, no, we can't buy that toy today. The toy store's closed, you know? Uh, it's bad, he says. Like, he do it all the time, all the time. So he decides in this article, in, in his life, he does these crazy things all the time, to just take a couple weeks of truth immersion therapy, that it'd, do good, it'd be good for him, for his relationships, for his work. And you can, ima- you can imagine how this, this worked out. Again, he's a humorist, so he's doing this for kind of the shock effect. But here's what happens. He announces to his boss one day his secret plans of starting his own company. See how that's going to go for you tomorrow morning. He informed his, fi- his friend's five-year-old daughter who was annoying him that the beetle she held in her hands was not napping but dead. Uh, he told his in-laws in a conversation that they're just simply boring to their face. Yeah, yeah. And then when, at the end of his haircut, his barber asked him what all barbers ask us, what do you think? You know what he said? It's the worst haircut I've ever seen. So his conclusion, here's a quote, deceit makes the world go round. Without lies, this is him again, marriages would crumble, workers would be fired, egos would be shattered, and governments would collapse. I mean, he could have written that today, right? In a world of alternative facts, right? So do you see it? It's, I mean, why we stress pressing into radical honesty and authenticity and transparency in the church? Because it's not easy. It's never going to be pretty. But is that the kind of world you want to live in? A, a world of, of inflated egos and, uh, you know, where, where deceit is sort of the, the value we live by instead of integrity? Uh, no. We're alternative fact. You never know what's true anymore. Is that the world you want to live in? And I'll just say it's not the world I want to live in. And it's not the world the Bible paints for us. And so the question on the table for us this morning, is it really even possible to live in a world of a single-paned window, you know, of, of real authenticity and transparency in relationship, where people can really just see you? Uh, is, it ima- is, it, is, it, is it possible to imagine, create, and shape, and inhabit that kind of a world? Or is that just kind of pie in the sky? It's good for Sunday, but Monday morning i got to make decisions I got neighbors, I don't want to tell them everything, you know, me and my spouse, uh, and I'll just say, according on the authority of Scripture, it is possible, and there's a way in which we get there. This hard work of truth-telling, transparency, there's a way in which we can get there. And the way we get there is through this word we use a lot at Bethany, we've been kind of orbiting around the last five weeks, it's simply this word intimacy. Now, we talk about intimacy a lot at Bethany. I've been talking about it the last five weeks. I've been using the word a lot. And yet, I'm afraid we don't know what we talk, we're talking about. Like when we say intimacy, like things come to mind that I, I just don't think that's the definition. You probably think of sex as the definition of intimacy, right? Many of us do. And I'll say sex is part of intimacy, but that's not the definition of intimacy. And so this morning, I'm, I'm glad you're wondering what the definition is because we're going to talk about it. We're going to answer that question and then a couple others uh, through the lens of Song of Solomon 5. So I have it open. We're going to look at what intimacy is. We're going to look at a couple risks associated with intimacy. And then we're going to look at a practice for sustaining it in our lives, okay? So what it is, 
What are some of the risks? It's like I said already, it's not going to be just easy to be transparent. And then we're going to look at a practice. So first, what it is, okay? And this is revealed in Song of Solomon 5 in verse 2, okay? So if you have it open, we didn't read this. And this is where we find out quite simply what intimacy is. Let me get my Bible out since I'm inviting you to do it. That's not Song of Solomon, that's Acts. Here we go. Verse 2, Song of Solomon chapter 5. Uh, she's, this is a dream chapter, so there's two dream chapters in Song of Solomon. Chapter 3, chapter 5 begins in verse 2. And this is what the woman says. I slept, my heart, but my heart was awake. She's dreaming, okay? And this is what she dreams. Listen, this is her lover talking to her. Listen, my beloved, he's knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. My head is wet with dew, my locks with drops from the night. Now the, the woman's speaking. I put on my garment, uh, I put off my garment, sorry, I was, I was dressed for bed. How could I put it on again? I bathed my feet. How could I soil them again? My beloved, this is very erotic language, my beloved thrust his hand into the opening, and my inmost being yearned for him. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and was, not, and was gone. We're going to go back to that, okay? So do you, do you hear it in this little passage I just read, verses 2 to 6, the re, sort of repetitive refrain? It's, it's this invitation to open up. Uh, open up, cries the man to the woman. And she opens up. Um, it's, it, that's intimacy. That's the definition of intimacy right there. Uh, it's it's it, intimacy that it drips with tenderness, singularity, and specialness, but also, and this is key, nakedness. He invites her in her nakedness to open up. You don't do that with just anybody, right? Uh, risk-taking, which we're going to, like I said, get to. And this passionate pursuit. Look at verse 2 again. Where the man, it says, my head is wet with dew, my locks with drops of the night. And what this is, again, it's poetry. Uh, commentators are going to tell you that th- it suggests that this man had gone through the night. There's grass he's gone through. He's gotten wet with the dew of the night. He's, he's gone through a journey and it's taken effort. And if you think about intimacy for a moment, it, it's, in that definition, it's something that takes time and effort. Uh, and we don't think of intimacy that way, do we? We think of sparks, we think of chemistry, we think of magic, right? We don't think of effort. <laughs> like when things take effort, that's not intimacy for us, right? But journey, effort, pursuit, risk, uh, those are the synonyms for intimacy here in the Bible. And in that way, as Brene Brown su- suggests in one place, she says, intimacy is really, listen to this, a collection of choices. Intimacy is a choice. It's the choice that we have to make every day, whether you're in a marriage relationship, a relationship with a hard neighbor, a deep friendship, significant other if you're not married. It's the choice to be real and show up, show up and be real, the choice to be honest, and the choice to, to let your true self be seen. It's a choice. It's a collection of choices. That's what it means to open up, okay? A little more on opening up. Richard Roy, Rohr, he's an author, a, a Catholic priest. He wrote this book a few years ago called The Immortal Diamond. And uh, he has a great definition for intimacy that I want to share with you. He says this, that intimacy is often described as our capacity for closeness and tenderness. It's true. And while it's true, he says this, it's more often revealed, at least in the Bible, in moments of risky self-disclosure. I love that. In fact, he says in one tweet that I read, intimacy always, always includes risky self-disclosure. 
And then he goes on to say that intimacy lets itself out and lets others in. And as a result, we're always larger as people because of an intimate encounter. You know, you let somebody in, you, go, you grow larger, you know? Uh, and and that it might well be the only way, he says, to enlarge spiritually through intimacy, through the pursuit and practice of intimacy. It might be the only way. Um, it's always a grace, he says. And I love that, that intimacy in his, his mind is always a grace. It's found in opening yourself and, and becoming a larger person in some way. And, and looked at this, looked at intimate, looked at through this light, intimacy, as you look at the Bible, it shows up all over the place, not just in Song of Solomon, which is kind of the intimacy book, you know, but all over the place. It's one of the overarching themes of the Bible. I don't know if you've ever thought of that, but it's really one of the big ideas. Look at this, specifically at the life of Jesus. Jesus' life is filled with intimacy. It's, it's oozing with it, especially in his post-resurrection encounters. I was reading through these this week. So, for example, like to the disciples, he's, he's died. They are scared stiff, right? They've gathered in the upper room. It's like Luke 24. And what does Jesus do? He gives them a flesh and blood encounter with him. And not just a flesh and blood encounter. Remember what he does? He offers himself to them in body, soul, and spirit. He says, touch me. Why are you afraid? Why are doubts in your heart already? Touch me. See that I'm real. In fact, to Thomas, he says, put your finger in the place where I've been nailed to the cross, in your hand in my side. It's, it's a very uncommon exchange, if you think of it this way, between two men. We don't do that as men. We do the, you know, kind of the bro hug, right? We do that. Jesus says, put your hand in my flesh. And that, that, that kind of reduces Thomas to this speechlessness and wonderment of, of kind of, of union regained with Jesus. He'd lost it, and now he's regained it as if uh, he's a lover of Jesus. You can almost see Jesus as the man in Song of Solomon open up to us. In another of those encounters in Luke's gospel also, Jesus just joins on an easy walk with two travelers. You know, this is the road to Emmaus. And these guys are previously no-name disciples. They're not part of the 12. Uh, he invites them to tell their story of heartbreak to him. He accepts their invitation to stay with them. And when he leaves them, remember, it's with burning hearts, Right? And do you know why their hearts were burning? Read Luke 12 some, or Luke 24 sometime. He, it says their hearts are burning because he opened up to them. That's the language of Luke. And then this is, this is what Luke says to them. Their eyes were opened up to him. Jesus opens up his story to them. Their eyes were opened up to him. It's, it's Song of Solomon all over again. Intimacy is opening up. Jesus does this with Peter. He does this with Mary in the tomb. He does this with the woman at the well before he dies, the woman caught in adultery. He's all over his life. His life, like I said, is oozing with intimacy. It's, and it's revealed in, in the experience of him opening up, which is an opening he's inviting us toward in relationship with each other and with God. Um, so why do, you, why do you think God's first quest, first question in the Bible, Genesis 3, is not, what did you do? You blockhead. I told you not to eat. That's not his first question. What does he say? Genesis 3.9. Where are you? First question in the Bible, first question God speaks to humanity. Where are you? Because they're hiding from God. And in the midst of their hiding, God seeks them out. He invites them to open up. 
kind of engaged in a cosmic or ancient Near Eastern game of hide-and-go-seek. Like, where are you? I desire intimacy with you. It's an invitation. An invitation to come out of hiding. (laughs) That's what intimacy is. It's taking the risk with God and with each other to say, this is me. Warts, wounds, uh, peaks and valleys, strengths, weaknesses, profound moments of joy, as well as deep, deep shame. This is me. It's me. It's all I got. No more hiding. No more airbrushing. We like to airbrush these days, don't we? Like lots of filters. Put it on Instagram. Hashtag it. No more masks. It's like saying, I'm going to just open my life to you and just let you see me and choose to be real with you, be honest, and just, just let myself be seen like that. Now, <laughs> that's intimacy. And yet, let's move to the second aspect here I want to look at with you. It sounds nice showing up, especially in a safe place like this where we're kind of on the same page. But Jack, yeah, big bad world out there. Like letting myself be seen, that's too risky because I would lose my job if people knew what I thought. My neighbors would never talk to me. My spouse might leave me. I mean, think about it. Unguarded and frankly naked like naked self-disclosure is probably a bad idea in the world in which we live. It, it involves risk. Remember what Rohr says, intimacy always involves risky self-disclosure. In fact, the origin of the word in English is a combination of Latin words. The Latin intimus, which refers to the interior or inside of you, and the Latin timor, which means in fear. And so here's what intimacy can mean. It happens when we reveal or expose our inmost parts And it's always scary. It's scary to do that. You think it's scary to walk outside in your underwear? Try sharing your heart. Really? That's intimacy. There are risks involved. So what are those risks? Because we would be wise to consider them, okay, as we practice this. There's two that are revealed in Song of Solomon 5. And the first is in verse 6. So it's, and and basically her lover leaves her. So verse 2, open up. Verse 5, I rose to open, right? Verse 6, I opened up, but my beloved had turned and gone. I called him, but he gave no answer. I, I sought him, and he, I found him not. There was no connection. I mean, what is going on here? Like, he got cold feet? Is this some sick joke? Like, what does he mean by open up? And I'll tell you what this means. It's just the human experience. <laughs> it's what it means. These are two human beings at a level. And so for every one of us in the room, married, single, gay, straight, young, old, doesn't matter who you are, we've all experienced this at one time or another in our lives, this risk. We've all opened up in the midst of that openness. Uh, we've, opened the, we've opened our lives up, and then we've discovered degrees of the leaving and the absence of the other, whoever that other is, whether it's a spouse or a neighbor or a child that we are trying to raise or a disinterested uh, friend, sarcasm, coldness, passivity, whatever it is. We call this the Seattle freeze here. Remember the Seattle freeze? There's an article in the uh, Seattle Times in 2005. And here, I'm just going to read verbatim from this article because it's, it's kind of funny and you need some levity here. So you're talking to a coworker. You're new to, imagine you're new to Seattle. <clears throat> How many of you are new to Seattle? There's a, maybe a couple. So this might be news to you. There's such a thing called the Seattle freeze. You're talking to a coworker, someone at a party, you fill in the blank, 
In any other town, this person looks like someone with whom you might be friends. A poten- so the potential friend asks you, what are you up to this weekend? And you say, oh, I don't know. I don't have plans yet. I just moved to Seattle and I don't really know anybody yet. You try not to look desperate. Friend to be smiles and then for a brief shining moment you think to yourself, finally, someone who's going to ask me to do something, invite me to a party or happy hour, or brunch with the girls. It'll be like sex in the city. She'll be Charlotte. I'll be Carrie. Okay? And then you feel this chill coming on. Seattle freeze, setting in. You're still smiling. And your friend, not on your life, politely excuses herself saying, well, have a nice weekend. I mean, have you ever experienced that here? A few of us have, yeah. And I think we can all relate at a level to the frustration and the disappointment in that. It's evident here in Song of Solomon 5, like the misunderstanding in this relationship, the insecurity because of the withdrawal, uh, emotional, physical withdrawal of this man from this woman. We, we recognize in this relationship between these two people that the, the, there's deep intimacy at the, at the threshold of the door, and yet for some reason, the man is left. And there, what he's left is disappointment, disillusionment. We've opened ourselves to a relationship, and we haven't been seen. <laughs> We've opened ourselves up, and the person hasn't really cared. We've opened up, and they haven't held the space with us. And by the way, this is just a lesson in reality. I'm sorry to be harsh, but the reality is that intimacy is not a constant experience for us. Uh, for anyone, it doesn't matter who you are. The fact is that our relationships, whether those, that's our marriage relationship or a friendship or as your parenting, the fact of the human experience is that we're not granted immunity from the problems of dysfunction and difficulty and pain, even in the closest relationships. And I'll just argue that it might be the closest ones that are hardest. We bring, we bring, and the reason is because we bring expectations to those relationships, fantasies, desires, hopes that we think are going to be fulfilled, right? If I just meet that guy or that woman, or this kid's going to complete me in some way. And what we realize when we get into it is that brings up disappointments. <laughs> and, and we have old wounds that we haven't cared for. And, we, and, they, and there's failures that happen. And there's shame, all this stuff. We're not immune from missing each other completely. It's part of the human experience. And can I just say this also? It's it's no different with God. Absolutely not. The fact that you or I may have committed ourselves to a lifelong relationship with God does not make us immune to the problems in that relationship either. Like I said, we are ancestors of Adam and Eve. We We are descendants of the fall. We're living in a fallen world, and we're prone in that fallen world to hide from God. We just do this. I don't know why. A God who's loving, a God who accepts us on any terms, and we hide. I don't get that. That's another sermon for another day. But in our millennia and millennia of hiding, here's what's happened. Though God has committed himself to deep and lasting intimacy with us, the reality is profound separation from God. We don't hear his voice clearly. We can't do his will clearly. We can't even read his word and discern it very well. All which is to say this, that it remains the case that the Christian life is not a life of uninterrupted intimacy, but instead it's one that knows the frustration and the anxiety of which Song of Solomon 5 speaks. I opened up and my lover left. So the first application here for you, and then we'll go to the second kind of uh, risk, is just remember the wise words of Richard, Richard Rohr that I said earlier, intimacy is a gift. It's a grace. 
That's what, that's what grace is. It's their gifts. Uh, I read somewhere that grace is like eating ice cream on a hot sunny day. It's like a bowl of fresh strawberries. It's things that, man, that's a gift. I'm going to enjoy it now. And like any gift, the, the, the invitation with intimacy is to enjoy it now when you have it. Because there will be moments when you don't. To enjoy the real, not obsess over the ideal. We often obsess over the ideal. It's, I've got to have it this way or not at all. And you miss the moments of the real. Uh, that's the grace of intimacy, just enjoying the moments you have. It could be a look in the eye. It could be a, a hold of the hand. It could be a, just a slight connection with a person. It could be on the bus with a stranger. Would you give yourself to that? So my exhortation to you, again, before we go to the second one, is, just, is to enjoy the moments of intimacy you have and reflect on those times when you've had it. You know, like, think of this for a second. Have you enjoyed a moment of intimacy with Jesus in your life or with another person, a close friend, your significant other, your parents, as you're walking them through stages, late stages of life? I've got one parent who has cancer, prostate cancer. The other has Parkinson's. Very hard relationship with them growing up. And I can say this is a question for me right now. Would I enjoy, would I reflect on the times in my life I've had, I have an intimacy with them? And would I allow myself to be moved toward them? That's, I mean, that, that's it right there. Just allowing yourself to be, enjoy those moments. So that's the first risk of intimacy. The reality of inconsistency and absence, but also in the midst of that, this profound promise of gratitude and grace, okay? I'm going to do, do the second risk here for you. It's in verse 7. She's left exposed, okay? So verse 6, I sought him. I didn't find him. And while seeking him, verse 7, the watchmen of the walls find her. They beat her, they bruise her, and they take away her veil. So this is a hard moment in the story of God. It's a hard moment in the Song of Solomon. Uh, it's a moment of exposure, it's a moment of abuse. It appears to be some sort of sexual abuse, um, which is this gut-wrenching, as I read it earlier this week, this gut-wrenching thing to even consider or even say to a congregation of people, especially for those for whom it's been your experience in life. So having said that, I just want to pause. This isn't a main point this morning, but I want to pause because the church has failed at addressing the looming reality of, of abuse, sexual abuse, in the story of God. We certainly have failed at doing it in our culture, which is another conversation for sure. But I mean, you read the story of God, and we skip over, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on Judah and Tamar, Dinah. You hear David Bathsheba, but you always put him in a good light. There are hellish and confusing moments in the Bible, which causes me as a pastor to sometimes ask, why? Why would God include that? And part of why, I think, is this opportunity for us to pause and acknowledge the fact that there's, destruct, there's this destructive reality of sexual abuse in our world today. Uh, and, and the church has, has failed at addressing that and, and in giving voice to the present and the future to which God's called us. And we failed because we haven't acknowledged those stories, <laughs> that they're there, that those things happened. Uh, we spiritualize it in some way. Well, this didn't really happen that way. It's really just a metaphor, right? 
I, I mean, literally, with Song of Solomon 5, I've read that. And, and, and we become irrelevant when we do that. The, so I'm just going to say the church has, is failing in our calling, and I'm not saying Bethany, but the church globally is failing in our calling when we've skirted around these moments in the Bible, reduced them to something they're not, uh, and worse, just been complicit in any sort of abuse, emotional, physical, or sexual. And so the church's role, and I'm going to say this as clearly as I can as your lead pastor, specifically in a, a neighborhood like Lake City, where if you walk down Lake City Way between 145th and 98th, <clears throat> but if you just walk down 115th, my daughter walks by it every, every day for school, there are strip clubs. There's Rick's. Up north, there's Deja Vu. Down south a little bit, there's Pandora's. What a name, right? And the church has failed. I don't say we failed, but the church has failed when we haven't st- stood for the most vulnerable in our city, in our world, and provided shelter and protection for them, and, and articulated their value and their dignity and their worth. Uh, so the, the question I have for us, I guess, this morning as we move to this, this risk is as we're sitting here, well, down the street or up on Aurora, there are women being trafficked in our city. It's not something that happens halfway around the world. Is, is are we standing with those women? Or if there are women in our, our church even who've experienced this, are we standing with you? And I, I don't know. Maybe we haven't figured out what that looks like yet, but I want to invite us into that conversation, that question, just because Song of Solomon pitches it at us. It says, in your face, you need to deal with it. So, have, so we live in a fallen, broken world. We're called to stand. It's a risk to, to be exposed in intimacy, okay? And, and so having said that, all of us in the room, whether we've experienced this literal traumatic abuse or a relationship with somebody who has, or we've been exposed in other ways. So there's a slight or a cutting sarcasm or a season of staleness in our marriage or the Seattle freeze, whatever it looks like. All of us in the room have been told at some time or another in our lives in some way, shape, or form, that we are unloved and unlovable. We've all heard this. And we've had, we've had a, in a way, our identity ripped to shreds, or people have attempted to rip our identity to shreds, to bruise it and beat it, okay, like these watchmen of the walls. And, and when that has happened, well, because it happens to all of us, I want to say to you, all of you know, okay, what the Bible tells you. And this is what the Bible tells you. You are children of God. And as children of God, Psalm 139, you are beautifully and wonderfully made. As children of God, Mark 111, you are people before you've done anything for God. You are people in whom God delights. He delights. In fact, he goes beyond that. Zephaniah 3.17, God delights to praise because of you. He says this, Zephaniah 3.17, God rejoices over you. That God quiets you with his love like a parent. That he exalts over you with loud singing. Think about that. We sing to God here. God sings to you, of you, about you. Karl Barth, one of my favorite theologians, he was once asked to summarize the Bible in a phrase. This is the guy who wrote the Church Dogmatics. If you know the Church Dogmatics, it's this theological treatise that I have, 14 volumes, 6 million words. It took him 6 million words to write about the Bible. Needed an editor. But uh, you know what he said? His summary of the Bible. He put his 6 million words and then the whole Bible into one phrase. You know what it was? Does anybody know? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We think of that as a sort of cheesy children's song. 
one of the greatest theologians of all time said that's the summary statement of the entire story of God. And it's so easy to forget it. We all know it. I mean, I saw some of you mouthing it. We all know it, but we, we often fail to believe it. Do you believe that Jesus loves you? Do you think about that love, his love for you specifically? I mean, look sometime at the Bible. Read your Bible. I'm, I'm challenging you to do this. Almost every page, God's saying to you, I love you. That's why I'm giving you this story. I love you. And if God is saying that on nearly every page, if, is that, if that's true and important, why aren't we spending more time with it? Why are we spending time with five spiritual laws and genocide and all these things? I mean, it's good stuff, but God wants to communicate His love to you. Every one of us in the room needs to be told and reminded that we're worthy of God's love, that we are beloved. And it's probably something we need to hear every day. That's our identity, okay? And the reason that's a big deal is because of these watchmen on the walls. The big reason for the frequency of that message in the Bible is because there's an enemy in the world who these, these watchmen are par- kind of paradigms for, an enemy that is seeking to kill and steal and destroy our identity, to rip it away. These watchmen are there to rob this woman of her belovedness, to sh- just tear to shreds. They're there to make us uncomfortable at hearing of God's love for you or kind of inoculate us to its power. When you say, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so, look how fast I said that. You don't believe it. <laughs> it's just some kid's song. We're numb. We, we don't think we're worthy of being loved. We don't, beloved, I mean, that's not me. That was Jesus when he's baptized, not me. We, our, our identity's been bent and broken. That's the core of who we are. It's been ripped away. The watchmen are emblematic of that enemy trying to beat and bruise every one of us in the room and take away any sense or shred of our worth and our, our goodness and our love, belovedness. And so the invitation here, here's the application, is to stare at the enemy when the enemy tries to take away your identity and to say, no way, you can't have it. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, Henry Nouwen, he's one of, I, I quote him all the time, right? One of my favorite authors published this little book before he died called The Inner Voice of Love, and the subtitle is The Journey Through Anguish to Freedom. And he wrote this actually during a really dark time in his life. It's actually the same time he was publishing his most well-known books like Life of the Beloved, Prodigal Son. It turns out he was struggling with a really deep, dark depression during those, those years, about eight years of it. And some friends challenged him and said, you need to publish. It was, he kept a secret journal. This is a secret journal. And his friend said, you need to publish this. And so he published it, and then he, he died soon after. And there's this, uh, this little entry. Again, this is his journal. He's writing. He never thinks he's going to publish this. Can you imagine <laughs> publishing your own journals? And this, this entry is called Face the Enemy. Now, he's speaking about himself. Think, put yourself in, when he talks about the first person here, think of this as you. As you see more clearly that your vocation is to be a witness to God's love, and as you become more determined to live out that vocation, the attacks of the enemy will increase. You'll hear voices saying you're worthless, you have nothing, you're unattractive, you're undesirable, you're unlovable. The more you sense God's call, the more you'll discover, this is you, friends, the more you'll discover your own soul, a cosmic battle between God and Satan. And then now it says, do not be afraid. 
Keep deepening your conviction that God's love for you is enough, that you're in safe hands, that you're being guided every step. What's important is to keep clinging to the real. Remember what I said, don't fixate on the ideal, cling to the real, the real, lasting, unambiguous love of Jesus. Whenever you doubt that, that love, return to your inner spiritual home, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1. Whenever you doubt that, listen to that voice. And only when in your deepest being you are intimately, know that you are intimately loved, can you face the dark voices of the enemy. And here's, the, here's how he finishes. The love of Jesus will give you an ever clearer vision of your call, as well as the many attempts to pull you away from that call. The enemy's trying to pull you away from your calling to articulate God's love, to know that you're loved. The more you're called to speak of God's love, the more you'll need to deepen that knowledge of God's love. The farther outward the journey takes you, the the further inward you must go to hear the voice of love. Only when your roots are deep can your fruits be abundant. The enemy is there seeking to, attempting to destroy you. But you can face the enemy without fear, because you know, when you know that you are held safe, firmly and securely, in the love of Jesus. Do you believe that? There's an enemy seeking to rob you of your identity, your core identity as beloved, and yet you have the, cur- the strength, not just the courage, the strength to face that enemy, because Christ is in you. You need to just go to Christ. Be reminded, you are loved. So if you face the enemy... Have you looked at the enemy and said, no, I'm loved. When, when discouragement comes in, I'm loved. When self-hatred comes in, I'm loved. When somebody cuts you down, I'm loved. I'm held. I'm secure. Have you done that? I can say I haven't done that enough, and I let the enemy get to me all the time. So that's the second risk, the risk of being exposed, and it's real and it's profound, and yet the opportunity for us is to face the enemy in that risky time and to, to declare and realize that we are held and defined by God, not by the enemy. Okay? So those are the risks. And they're real and they're profound. But I want to I close because they're there with this practice that's going to sustain intimacy. Specifically, just a way for you in the midst of really risky, perilous world we're in to, to practice sustained intimacy in your life and your relationships with God. Okay? And this is really in verses 10 to 16, the part we read. Maybe you've forgotten this. I'd invite you to go back to it. The question, as we conclude, how do we sustain intimacy in our lives over the long haul? You're in a marriage, over the long haul, with neighbors and friends, you know, with your kids as you're raising them. How do you sustain intimacy with them over the long haul? Through challenging seasons, okay? And the answer offered uh, in Song of Solomon 5, 10 to 16, is a really good one. It's very simple. Verse 9, her friends ask her what her lover looks like, right? Um, so they can help her find him. And then she goes on to offer this fairly lengthy, I'm not going to reread it, but explicit description of him. But, and here's the key. In contrast from her descriptions of him in the, in the past, in the story, where they describe each other to each other, you'll often read this in Song of Solomon, she's talking about him to him. He's talking about her to her. It's kind of this love of courtship and like, right? She's not describing him to him. She's describing him to them. It's not, it's not description to woo. It's description to appreciate. Here's what I mean by that. It's the practice of appreciation. 
The woman picks up 10 things about her lover to describe him, things she admires about him, his head, his hair, his eyes, his cheeks, his lips, his hands, his, his nine-pack. Have you seen the Batman movie? His nine-pack, his abdomen, his legs, his mouth, all that stuff. And, and what, what if you were to do something like that with somebody in your life? Just think of that for a sec. Like, t- just to sit down and list 10 things about one of your children that you love. Just write them down. Not to tell them, but increase something in you. A sense of appreciation for them. Or about your spouse or significant other. Just take out a, a note card and write down 10 things. Like, if you were to close your eyes right now, can you even list 10 things about your spouse? Or an aging parent. I already shared that my parents are, are going through a really hard time right now. And this is, like I said, a word for me to stop and appreciate them for who they are. Not how they failed me. Not all the stuff I wish we could go to counseling about, how they've fallen short, uh, but their beauty, their strength, to allow God to develop in me a sense of appreciation and longing for them. Because there's going to be a day when they're no longer here. And I do not want to be filled with regret. Appreciation is the practice. So how do you talk about and think about and reflect on those in your life to whom God's called you to be intimate with? Do you do that? Will you do that this week? Are you so busy, you can barely put your shoes on straight or the right feet? Like, we don't do that. In fact, we do the opposite. We gossip. We cut people down. We complain because of the things they didn't do. We whine. This has been my experience with our kids because they're not getting the things they want. Or I might whine too. (laughs) I'll just say gossip, complaint, whining, grumbling, never, never develop intimacy. Never. You cannot get to intimacy through gossip. You can't do it. Good luck. But you you can erode it. (laughs) Look at the people of God in their wilderness wandering. For 40 years, they, they complain. God's not doing enough for them. Moses is just failure. They're infighting and bickering. It's no wonder they start to worship other gods. It's no wonder they they look for other leaders. It's no wonder they're infighting by the end of Judges. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. They fail to recognize the value and the beauty and the worth of the people they're with and the God who's guiding them. And that's the way that intimacy is sustained over the long haul. Through the simple practice, while we wait for it, when we don't have access to it, just allowing our hearts to be enlarged by the act of appreciation so that we can receive it when it comes be bigger. Take more. Just be, I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, there's no ordinary people. Like, look at the person next to you real quick. Do it. Could, might be a stranger, so this might be uncomfortable. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. There's ne- there's n- you've never talked to a mere mortal. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Uh, it is immortals. This person you just looked at is an immortal person who you joke with, who you work with, who you marry, who you snub, and sometimes exploit. Indeed, next to the the sacrament, which we're going to celebrate in a moment, your neighbor is likely the holiest object presented to your senses. If he or she is a Christian, then certainly they are, because in him or her is Christ, the glorifier and the glory glory himself is hidden in that person you just looked at. You're not a mere mortal. (laughs) 
So the realization of, of your neighbor as someone who Christ is in, who's sacred, a sacred object, object that God's trying to present to you, created by God, filled with glory, that changes everything. That's a huge game changer when you begin to appreciate that person. It deepens your longing for people and ultimately your longing for God. So here's my last question for you. How do you do this with God? How do you appreciate God? You could just go, list of 10 things. I want to do something a little different for you, with you this morning. Uh, Eugene Peterson in Psalm 46, this is that psalm where it says, be still and know that I'm God. I love how he translated it. He says, attention, attention all. See the marvels of God. He planted flowers and trees all over the earth. He banned war from pole to pole. He broke the weapons or will break the weapons across his knees. Then he says, a step out of the traffic of your life. That's the be still and know. Take a long, loving look at your God. So here's how I want to invite you to practice appreciation with God. Yeah, I'll invite the worship team forward. To take a long, this week, take a long, loving look at God. And here's how I want to do that with you today. Because there's a lot of ways you could do that. You could go for a hike this week. You could look at a word of Scripture and go deep into it rather than just reading, reading, reading. Just go deep into it. Allow your heart to go. But here's what I want to do with you this morning through communion. We at Bethany, um, when we celebrate communion, we do what's called intinction. So if you're new, this is the way this usually works. People will come forward. There'll be stations. And we rip and dip. (laughs) You've heard this. People will take off a piece of bread and you'll dip it in the cup and you'll usually eat it, right? Here's how I want to invite you to do this a little different this morning. Some of you will do it with your kids. And it's going to be messy. And don't worry about it. I'm going to invite you to take a piece of bread. You'll rip it off. Or if it's gluten-free bread, which we have here on this plate, you'll take it off the plate and dip it. And then I'm going to invite you to take it back to your seat. And it's going to drip all over your hand. (laughs) And it's going to make a little holy mess. It's good. We're going to take this together, all of us at once. So we'll, we'll sing this first song during communion, and then we'll partake, I'll lead us. After everyone's come forward and taken communion, we'll take all at once, okay? Forget, don't worry, you can go back for seconds. It's okay. And during that time, because your kids are coming in, here's what I want to invite you to do. You're going to have a piece of bread with some juice on it. This is the body of Christ broken for you. And the blood of Jesus shed for you. He sacrificed himself for you for one reason, to communicate his love, that you are someone worthy of his love, worthy of living for, worthy of dying for. That's why Jesus did this. And so this morning, you you hold that bread, look at that bread, meditate on that fact, and thank God for his love for you, okay? That's the invitation.